One woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. Hey, my name is Andrea T. Sevenson, and welcome back to Peace and Gender. In this podcast, I'm trying to highlight the issues around gendered inequalities by meeting the people who are actually seeking solutions. And I'm trying to get to know not only their research, but also their personal story. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Eleanor Gordon, who worked for the UN with peace and security for 10 years. A large group of women wanted to return to Srebrenica. They didn't have any homes. The homes had been completely destroyed. Their husbands and their children had been killed. Eleanor is in many ways a living proof that you can make a difference if you just put your mind to it. Eleanor has worked with building state security and justice institutions. She's worked with demobilizing guerrilla groups, addressing war crimes and human rights violations, promoting gender equality and inclusive approaches to peace building, and she's addressed issues relating to organized crime and terrorism. This is Eleanor's story. Whilst I was writing up my PhD, I decided to do some um, voluntary work for a um, peacekeeping training centre because I felt that I had exposure to lots of aspects of what I was interested in and where I wanted to work, um, all bar the military. And I felt that that was a gap in my knowledge and understanding. So I decided to do some um, voluntary work. I was an intern at um, the Pearson Peace Chemistry Centre in Canada for eight months. And um, I completed my doctorate while I was there. And it happened also to coincide with an opportunity with UNHCR. There was a um, UN volunteers position within UNHCR in Bosnia that I um, found out about and I was recommended for it. So Eleanor was working for the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency. She was head of a small satellite office in Eastern Republic Srpska, part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. One of her responsibilities was to facilitate the return of displaced people. So basically, Bosniaks returning to their pre-war homes who had been uh, forcibly displaced. Um, I was responsible for facilitating the first return, a minority return to Srebrenica, and um, yeah, that experience, you know. Probably has yeah has framed the way I've seen my subsequent engagement. When Eleanor was working in Bosnia, she wasn't just sitting around in an office. If you're right down at the sort of municipal level, you're generally working in the field, and that's the most for me. That's the most enjoyable work when you're in direct contact with the people that you're ostensibly there to help. So, yeah, we would have an office, but every day we would be out. I wanted to know if there was a particular moment in Eleanor's career that still stays with her today. Eleanor was working for the UN in Srebrenica. In 1995, Serbian forces separated the Bosnian civilians at Srebrenica, putting women and girls on buses, sending them to Bosnian-held territory. The men and boys who were left behind were murdered, and it has been estimated that over 7,000 Bosniaks were killed. 
And yeah, I was reflecting on this and I just couldn't get away from this particular event. So I found it really difficult to, because it, yeah, it's quite a long time ago. <laughs> My memory is failing. But the, um, so when I was uh, head of the UNHCR satellite office covering Srebrenica, um, I was responsible for um, facilitating the first minority return to Srebrenica. Um, and as you probably know, there was a genocide committed in Srebrenica during the war. And um, thousands of men and boys um, particularly were killed. So when I was working there um, with my colleagues in the international community and principally the um, my colleague who was head of the Office of the High Representative Satellite Office in um, Srebrenica, we coordinated and facilitated their return. Um, and I guess it stays with me for many reasons. Firstly, you know, the the amazing courage um, that people who have suffered such trauma, um, you know, beyond what you can imagine. What When people are talking about conflict and war, um, you know, oftentimes we might um, reflect upon how you become desensitised to violence or um, how you can be very traumatised and, and that leads to a cycle of conflict happening. Um, but we rarely talk about those who have the courage to continue with their lives, those who have the courage to fight peacefully against what they believe is wrong. So these um, uh, predominantly women, a large group of women wanted to return to Srebrenica. They didn't have any homes. The homes had been completely destroyed. Their husbands and their children had been killed. And they wanted to return, even though they knew they'd be sleeping under sheeting, there were no schools, there was no water, electricity, because it was their homes. And they wanted, um, that was where where they felt was home. But they also wanted to reclaim, reclaim that, um, not accept what has happened. So there there was a strength behind their decision to wanting to return, even though at that stage, those who were responsible for the crimes, the horrific war crimes that had happened in Srebrenica were uh, still in positions of power in the municipality. So they were exposing themselves to, themselves to serious threat. And there had been a number of returns um, in my area of responsibility to that stage, uh, until that stage, um, that had gone wrong. Uh, there had been security incidents, and one in particular in the neighbouring municipality, and a, um, a teenager had lost their leg because the day before they were going to return home, someone had placed um, a landmine in, in the villages. During the time that I was there, 18 months, thousands of people would return to their pre-war homes. They were often completely destroyed, and they would... Um, um, put up sheeting, so UNHCR would be able to help with basic sheeting and basic essentials, nothing, nothing else. And then we would facilitate the response of the um, NGOs and other organisations um, to respond to their other needs. But of course, there wasn't sufficient resources to to respond to everyone's needs. And we would also ensure that the uh, responsible authorities uh, in the local authority, the police and the municipal authorities, responded to their security needs. Um, and we would work alongside. Um, um, S4, um, which was uh, NATO, NATO forces who would um, address the security side of things. So I was saying why Srebrenica uh, stood out. Um, many people believed that people wouldn't want to return to Srebrenica after everything that 
had happened to them. And they were returning to a village that was very remote. As I said, there were no houses. They were completely destroyed. And there were still people who had, you know, uh, we believed, had been responsible for the crimes in positions of authority. So there were many people who didn't think that these returns would be sustainable, that people would stay there, because UNHCR had a mandate to um, facilitate the safe and sustainable return of refugees and displaced people. So if you didn't think it was going to be sustainable, it wasn't our responsibility as UNHCR to facilitate that return. And my gut knew that, and so did you know, fortunately, I also had a colleague, as I said, in the office of the high representative. We knew that we were there to respond to the needs of those who wanted to return home. We weren't there to cause an obstruction to it. And my gut knew this was the right thing for me to do. And at the time, I was a UN volunteer. I was relatively young and relatively new to the job. And I had all my sort of supervisors at headquarters and it went to New York. Many people saying this, you're exposing these people to people to security threats. Um, you're not being responsible. You need to stop this now. And I knew it was and uh, pretty, pretty stubborn anyway. But sometimes, you know, when you know things are right, you have to stick to that. Um, and we facilitated their return. It went very well. They didn't overnight, but that, that was not the intention. And eventually um, they have returned. It's a sustainable return. NGOs have re responded to you know, the education needs, providing hospitals and, and building the houses and roads and um, water infrastructure and so on. And it just you know, told me a lot that when you know something is right, you have to stick to it, even if you know, you've got everyone, you know, a thousand people saying... This can't happen. If you know something can happen and it should happen, it's your responsibility. You know, you, ha you have to reflect upon why you're working in these environments. And it's not to get a paycheck, get a promotion, you know, sort of be a yes man. It's to respond to those who have suffered. Did it make any difference that you were saying, no, it is and I want to do, you know what I mean? Or was it you and a lot of other people just to kind of understand your role in the whole thing? Yeah, um, because you and HCR was the lead agency responsible for facilitating the return of refugees and displaced people, our organisation could make those decisions. So my role, even though I was a volunteer, was pretty significant because I was head of the satellite office of UNHCR. However, elsewhere in UNHCR and other organisations, so those on the ground knew differently. Um, we were quite near the um, border with the Federation, those across the federation i think in many you know sort of like conflicts post conflict environments there are many sides to a conflict and you can have neighbors who have very different perspectives so those in the federation that only uh, that rarely travel to the republika serbska would consider that it was much too dangerous to set foot in and that anyone who expects people to return there's got to be crazy so i would get a lot a lot of, particularly from my most senior senior boss, my, my direct supervisor, a lot of criticism um, that I was exposing these people to danger, I was being irresponsible. But he could not, in order for him to stop what I was facilitating, he would need to um, um, sort of, you know, take quite a bold step in stopping the return of refugees and displaced people to their pre-war homes in Srebrenica because it was Srebrenica in the first return it had global attention so any move that anyone made would have um, 
you know, would have generated a lot of pu- publicity. But it's but so they were in a difficult position in that they couldn't stop the return. But because I I I could have done and I could have postponed it, you know, with the colleagues that I was working with. So with um, with NATO and with the Office of the High, High Representative, there were other UN representatives there in situ who also didn't agree that this return was sustainable. They thought it was politicised. They thought it was dangerous. So, it, you know, the pressure got quite significant. And on the actual day, we were travelling up the hill. And, you know, I, I and, and I think, you know, some of my colleagues were you know, really worried, thinking, shit, you know, you know, have we done the right thing? We knew we had. We'd gone, you know, we'd you know you have to in those circumstances you know there is always a security risk and you have to you know plan prepare and just make sure you've addressed every potential outcome um yeah when did you know you'd made the right choice you you said you were like traveling up the hill yeah when they got to the top and none of the cars had crashed or fallen off the cliff like it was uh it was a long way it was a. I mean, you know, the return was longer than that because um, there could have been, you know, attacks, you know, sort of a, a, at a later stage. But it, there were no roads, um, and you were, you know, in trucks. I can't even recall how long the journey took, but a long time, you know, up the edge of a, you know, really st- sort of st- steep. I wouldn't call it a hill, like a mountain. <laughs> so, you know, we we're, you know, a little bit nerve wracking. After spending five years in Bosnia, Eleanor moved to Kosovo, and she was the political advisor to the Kosovo Protection Corps coordinator, reporting to the United Nations. The Kosovo Protection Corps, they are, um, or they they no longer exist. They um, they were comprised primarily of demobilized Kosovo Liberation Army personnel. So they were, you know, basically the guerrilla fighters during the conflict. Um, they're a civil emergency organization as the Kosovo Protection Corps um, with aspirations to be the future army of Kosovo um, and now exists the Kosovo Security Force. So my role as political advisor was to liaise with um, prospective donors, the media to address um, um, gender issues, ethnic minority issues, to um, facilitate the further development of the Kosovo Protection Corps um, as it aspired to further professionalise and develop into the Kosovo Security Force. But the the two are quite different organisations f- for political reasons. <laughs> it's a complicated history. There was a mandate. The UN had a mandate to facilitate the implementation of the peace agreement. And part of that peace agreement was to ensure that the establishment of the Kosovo Protection Corps and its further development. So the UN was obliged to ensure that um, this organisation um, adhered to various standards, that it recruited a number of ethnic minorities, um, that it responded to the needs of everyone on its territory, um, that it you know, w- was transparent and accountable and you know, th- there were policies developed and practices developed that enabled its further professionalisation. Um, depending on who you spoke with, um, that was to lead the way to it becoming a future defence force. And at least that's how the Kosovo Protection Corps saw it and some um, some external actors as well. Um, but it was a civilian emergency organisation. And when you have any conflict, 
you're, you have to demobilise the combatants and you can't simply take away their guns and get rid of their their internal structures. You have to find a way in which they can coexist with those they might have been fighting against. So there needs to be some reintegration programme. Um, oftentimes you might have a programme whereby um, former combatants of non-state armed groups would be recruited or join the army, the state armed forces, um, or there might be other um, programmes that will enable them to um, socially, economically, politically participate and address their psychosocial needs. And unless you do that, there is always the risk that you're going to return to conflict because you have a large number of former combatants whose grievances might not have been addressed. You don't have any jobs, don't have any income to support their families. These are the people that you need to attend to if you don't want further conflict. I would argue that you also need to attend to those who don't pose a threat to peace. Those who are, those are often ignored. Who are these people who are like ignored? Generally speaking, those who aren't seen as what is called a spoiler to the peace process, those who aren't seen as potentially destabilizing, those who might not take up arms, those who might not challenge the legitimacy of the government, who might protest or disrupt what those who are trying to establish a sustainable peace are trying to do. And, and often there's a quite a narrow interpretation of what a spoiler is, who they are, and people generally assume that spoilers are simply those who might take up arms and cause an escalation or an outbreak of conflict. But of course, if you have the majority of the population who don't accept the leg legitimacy of the government or who don't have faith or confidence in the peace process, you're not going to have a sustainable or meaningful peace, even though they might not take up arms. So you do need to respond to the needs of those who have been marginalised, you know, those who continue to be marginalised and, and ignored, ethnic minorities, women, disabled people, young people, children, elderly people. They're often ignored and it tends to be, you know, young, fit men you know, to sort of stereotype who are considered to be, you know, those who might be potential spoilers. Their agency isn't recognised. And it's not that um, people might consider that young, fit men, you know, to stereotype and, and generalise, uh, need to be fixed, but they need to either be controlled or prevented from destabilizing a fragile peace. So former combatants, those who have access to arms, those who've been fighting and are trained, um, and those who may have grievances, those who may not have um, attachments or who have um, been desensitized to violence or traumatized, they, they are likely more likely than others to take up arms again. So you need to address that threat. Yeah, I mean, I'm generalizing quite a lot. So, of course, there are many organizations that do attend to the needs of women and children and, and marginalized groups. And this is going from experience 10 years ago. So things have, have moved on. Even if you do stop armed conflict, if you're not addressing the security and justice needs of women, of children, of the marginalized groups, for whatever reason, you can't consider that the security and justice is meaningful, that peace is being enjoyed by everyone. So there's, therefore, in my opinion, there's no meaningful peace if only a small minority are able to enjoy the dividends of peace. As I said in the beginning of this podcast, Eleanor is in many ways a living example of how we can actually make a difference in the world. But what began her journey to work with social justice issues? I guess when I was younger, um, 
what began my interest or passion in social justice issues. And, you know, it's something that drives many people inside and there may not have been an incident that, you know, ignited that desire to respond to what you see as injustices. Um, but I remember being very young and wanting to do something positive. And I lived in you know, a bit of a rubbish town. Um, you were lucky if you got out, you know, a lot of drug and um, drink problems. And a lot of people, even in the school, would say, don't be silly, you can't change anything. You know, who do you think you are? And it's just never, I think it's important for students to know that you can change things. Just the way we treat each other on a day-to-day basis, you change people's lives. And if people say no, do not yet ever let it stop you. You can make a positive difference. We have a responsibility if we're lucky enough to have a good life. We have a responsibility to respond to those who haven't been as fortunate. And it could just as easily be us who is in a conflict-affected environment, who've been forced to leave that country, um, who become an asylum seeker, who are uh, living you know, in conflict or living in a household and and suffering violence or insecurity. We can do something about it and we know these things are going on and we can change things for the better. And if we're told no, just, we, you know, we know that we can do things. So Eleanor has spent 18 years working in the field of international development. After leaving the UN, Eleanor has worked with a number of universities, and she's now a lecturer at Monash University. So the last years, Eleanor has used her past experience in her academic work. So my research, um, I decided to reflect upon my experience in order to inform my research and hopefully use my experience to potentially inform policy and thereby practice because I saw that there was a significant disconnect between those engaged at the state level in peace building and those engaged at, at the ground level. So international NGOs tended to focus on communities. I'm generalising greatly but in the security and justice sector that's that's my experience and international organisations focused on building institutions, policies, processes and structures. So my research was looking at ways in which to build sustainable peace, um, focusing particularly on the security and justice sector by bridging those two endeavours so that the people who are affected by conflict, you know, people at the ground level, were able to inform the security and justice structures and policies and legislation that was being developed at the state level. And too often... What happened was you would build um, a state um, security institution or draft a piece of legislation or policy and thereafter you might consult with the people um, who the institution was there to respond to their needs or you might tell them about it. But there wasn't comprehensive engagement by local communities at the early stages of the reform process. So my research was looking at ways in which this could be done, ways in which the two approaches to building security and justice after peace could be integrated and as part of that it's led on to further research which is looking at ways in which peace building in the security and justice sector can be more inclusive, ways in which it can involve uh, women, ways in which poor people tend to be marginalised and why they need to, their needs need to be addressed.
that was Eleanor. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. My name is Andrzej Evanson, and this podcast was produced for Monash Gender, Peace and Security and Mojo News.